We are so glad to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Amen? Over the past several months um, in summer, we've been talking about some of the, the false narratives of God that we live with. And we might call these stories, and what's important about the way that we talk to ourselves and the way that we describe God, when it comes down to it, that is how we live our life out, depending on how we look at God. Uh, The series for the summer, Is God Blank? And we've broken it down into six weeks. Uh, Last week, we took a week off just simply to be reminded and refreshed about the importance of communion. And I hope that that you got something out of that message. Um, I heard from several of you that it was very significant. And just let me pause and say that any time we give a message, uh, Adam, Robin, and I, we would love to hear from you if you have questions If you have something you want to share with us afterwards, uh, we welcome your text or your email or your phone call. I love that we have conversations that continue from Saturday evening. But back to our summer series, Is God? We looked, uh, Is God an Angry Tyrant? Some of us view God as that person Uh, with a long white beard, with a gavel in one hand, and he's ready to judge us with one hand and throw the book at us with the other. Is God a cosmic vending machine, something that we just push and make our selection? And some of this will kind of overflow with what we're going to talk tonight. Uh, Is God a killjoy? Is he just wanting you to suffer? And is he out there just to make sure that your life is miserable? And then, is God a Republican or a Democrat? I did want to ask Adam why you put Republican in the front of that title, but I'll ask you afterwards. And tonight we are asking, is God a lucky charm? Next week we'll end our series on this, Is God? And we will look at God as, is he an absent father? So I hope that you'll come back next week as we complete this. And what we want to do with this material, what our aim is, is to wake us all up to some of our own beliefs about who God is. Sometimes we don't even realize how we've gotten to the point of how we look at God. And we hope that the conversations that we have tonight will continue. And maybe, that, maybe that's in your neighborhood group next week. Uh, maybe that is with a friend from the church that you're meeting for lunch. But let's continue this dialogue because, as the Bible says, we are, as Christians, supposed to encourage each other. As iron sharpens iron, We are supposed to do that with our brothers and sisters and community. Um, We are on this spiritual journey together, and I am so blessed to be a part of this church. We learn together, we grow together, and during this time we are being transformed to become more and more like Jesus. This week I had a couple of days of silence and solitude 
just time set apart, getting out of the city for a little bit, just to focus on God without all the distractions. And there was a a scripture that really spoke to me, and I couldn't wait to get back to share it with you. And uh, I meant to mention earlier, you have some sheets on your table. Uh, Those sheets are in lieu of the overhead with the verses on it. It's also for you to take any type of notes that you would like to take and kind of follow along with what Robin and I are going to cover. But look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, when we sincerely take our mask off that, that we hide behind, when we serious take a look at Jesus and say, I want to know more about God, and we stand face to face without that mask on, He will grow us. He will transform us to be more and more like Jesus. And we don't get that transformation all at one point. It would be nice if we could just pray the prayer and God would go, boom, you're totally transformed to be like Jesus. That's not in the plan. So he doesn't begin with 100%. Maybe he starts with 2%. And it's a slow process of us changing our ways and changing, uh, learning more about God and who He is and who He wants us to be. And I know that He will continue to grow us, as this verse said, by degrees. So, I love the fact that I am a lifelong student of God. I love the fact that the older I get, the more I realize how much more there is to know about God, this, this God that I've devoted my whole life to, that I love and serve. I love the fact that in this lifetime on earth, we continue to grow, not get stagnant, not go backwards, but to really grow and become more and more like Christ. And at times, we're impatient. I know I am, and I've probably figure you are too. But I love this story that A.H. Strong tells. A student asked the professor of his school whether he could take a shorter course rather than the one prescribed. And the president says, oh yes, you can. But it depends on what you want to be. When God wants to make an oak, he takes a hundred years. And when God wants to make squash, he makes six months. And so, how do you identify with this? How do you want to grow yourself to be more like Christ? Tonight, we're going to look at three key questions that Adam has asked uh, when he has preached. And we are tonight and next week. Number one, what is this false narrative that we're talking about? Is God a good luck charm? Number two, what is the true narrative? If that's a false narrative, there's got to be truth. We've got to find out what that truth is. And number three, 
how does Jesus reveal this true narrative to us? So it all comes back to seeing God through the eyes of Jesus. That's where we want to center. That's where we want to focus. Um, George Foreman did a great job for me tonight on answering the first question, is God a lucky charm? The former heavyweight boxing champion writes in his book, God in My Corner. In 1974, before I went to Africa to fight Muhammad Ali, a friend gave me a Bible to take along on my trip, and he said, George, keep this for good luck. Now, I believe the Bible was just a shepherd's handbook, probably because the only verse I knew in the Bible was, the Lord is my shepherd. But I was always looking for luck, so I carried that little Bible with me to Africa. I had lucky pennies, I had good luck charms, and so now I had this lucky Bible to my collection of superstitious items. After I lost the the fight, I threw the Bible away. I never even opened it. I thought, the Bible didn't help me win, so why do I need it? I thought that I'd get power just by owning it. I didn't realize that you had to open it up and read it and believe what it said. Thank you, George Foreman, for that definition. Several years ago, I was sitting in a living room of someone, and the TV was on, And it happened to be on a channel where a well-known preacher of a megachurch in Houston was preaching. And I had not listened to this preacher before, so I was kind of curious. I wanted to hear what he had to say. He has such a huge following. Well, he was talking about how much God loved us, how much God wanted to bless us. And he gave this scenario. He said, Let's say you and your family are living in a dirty little apartment. He said, suppose you're in this little apartment. The landlord won't fix anything. It smells. You hate it. And so you go to prayer with God, and you say, God, would you give me a new apartment? And this preacher says, let me tell you something. You're too shy with God. You don't realize how many blessings he wants to give you. He wants to make you happy. So, instead of asking for an apartment, a large apartment where the kids can have space, ask for a house. And don't ask for a three-bedroom house. Ask for a four-bedroom house. Because, you see, God wants to bless you. And this is what that pastor had to say. You, You might be surprised to know that I agree with this preacher. God does want to bless us, but where we differ is how God wants to bless us. What this preacher was saying over the network made me nauseated. He was turning God into a product to get what we want. This view was that the person Praying to God was the most important entity of this conversation between he and God, not God, the person. And in some twisted fashion, we began to believe that life revolves around us, making us happy. 
In America, we are focused on ourselves and reaching the goal of being happy. And not only that, we pass it down to our children because we want them to be happy. And in that way of thinking, God becomes a product. He becomes a product to get what we want. But if we are desiring to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, we must understand what God's purpose is. His plan, his purpose, is that of redemption, of this broken world, of this dirty world where hatred has grown and is passionate. His desire is to bring shalom to the whole world for all peoples in the world, not just America, but for the whole world. And then our purpose as a disciple of Jesus Christ is to come along and be a part of that plan that God has, his redemptive power for the world. See, it doesn't matter how many bedrooms you have. It doesn't matter if you're in an apartment, if you're in a house. It doesn't matter the kind of car you drive, how many cars you have, if you have a swimming pool or if you don't. What matters is that you recognize that in the entity with you and God, God is the focus, and we are his disciples. Can I hear an amen on that? Uh, Paul wrote this in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, we have to give up ourselves and we give everything to Jesus. That's why I love the idea of baptism, the image of what baptism is. Several years ago, I baptized Kaylin in a lake, and the idea of Kaylin was going under. She was giving up her life as she knew it. She was dead to self, but raised in the life of Jesus Christ. Baptism describes what Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21. People who have this twisted narrative of God being a product, something that we use in order to get stuff or relationships to make us happy, they've missed the whole point. You see, they view and treat God like a charm to get the end result. God is not a charm. He's charming, but he's not a charm. He is not a product to which the end is stuff and we think will make us happy. He is the source. He is what we are really looking for. And once we find him in all of his goodness, then we discover that he is the happiness that we are all looking for. Well, I want to spend my time with you guys looking at just a couple of scriptures. I think it's so important for us to realize that this idea of lucky charm, it's nothing new. We do have that cool cereal, you know, that, that the people in the Bible didn't have. But the idea of a true lucky charm, yeah, nothing new to us. Uh, so I'm going to look at, start off looking uh, at 1 Samuel 4. It's a little bit lengthy. So get kind of comfortable. I'm going to read it from the message. And some of these words, I didn't realize that they were kind of, if I butcher them, I'm sorry, Adam. I know you'll cringe back there, but okay. <laughs> so we're, let's look at the scripture together. 
Uh, it says, whatever Samuel said was broadcast all through Israel. Israel went to war against the Philistines. Israel set up camp at Ebenezer, the, Phil- the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines marched out to meet Israel. The fighting spread, and Israel was badly beaten. About 4,000 soldiers left dead on the field. When the retreats turned to camp, Israel's elders said, Why has God given such a beating today by the Philistines? Let's go to Shiloh and get the chest of God's covenant. The ark is what they're talking about. It will accompany us and save us from the grip of our enemies. So the army sent orders to Shiloh. They brought the chest of the covenant of the God, the God of the angel armies, the cherubim enthroned God. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, accompanied the chest of the covenant of God. When the chest of the covenant of God was brought into camp, everyone gave a huge cheer. The shouts were like thunderclaps, shaking the very ground. The Philistines heard the shouting and wondered, what on earth is going on? What's all the shouting among the Hebrews? Then they learned that the chest of God had entered the Hebrew camp. The Philistines panicked. Their gods have come to the camp. Nothing like this has ever happened before. We're done for. Who can save us from the clutches of these super gods? They're the same gods who hit the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues out of the wilderness. On your feet, Philistines, courage. We're about to become slaves to the Hebrews, just as they have been slaves to us. Show us what you're made of. Fight for your lives. And they did fight. It turned into a huge rout. They thrashed Israel so mercilessly that the Israelite soldiers ran for their lives, leaving behind an incredible 30,000 dead. And if that wasn't bad enough, the chest of God was taken and the two sons of Eli were killed. So I'm not going to take a lot of time, but man, that, that's, a, that's a bad story. It doesn't end well. They start off with one battle. You know, they, they go into battle. They lose 4,000 people. They come back together. The elders come back together. And from what I'm reading, they don't say, God, why did you do this? God, what do we need to do to turn back to you? We are sorry. We ask for, for your forgiveness. You be with us. We need you. Man, no, the scripture says, the elders said, And by the the wording, you can tell they're talking amongst themselves. Why has God given us such a beating today by the Philistines? Talking amongst themselves. You know, in the beginning, it talked about whatever Samuel had said. The Israelites had been warned that they needed to turn back to God. And they didn't want to do that. Even going into battle, they didn't want to do that. They didn't need God. Even being beaten and losing 4,000 They came and talked among themselves. Why did this happen? We can't figure this out, right? But not ever addressed to God. They were just venting. We do that, right? Why did this happen? Man, this really stinks, right? I got a flat tire. That really stinks. Never asking God for repentance. They thought to solve this problem, hey, I know, we're going to go get this thing, the ark, Let's get the ark, and that will give us our power. When we have this big thing, they're going to be scared. We're going to be powerful, and we are going to win. It's not God that's going to help us. It's this thing that's going to give us our courage and our strength and our ability 
to beat these other guys. <laughs> it's the ark that's going to give us our victory. It's our lucky charm. So that's exactly what they were treating this thing as, right? As their good luck charm to bring them the victory that they wanted. I know, okay, maybe not. This is a younger crowd. Some of y'all have seen uh, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? When, yeah, okay, thank you. So we know, let, let me just describe what we're talking about here, this ark, this thing. And it's not like a little rabbit's foot that you can put these. This was a big lucky charm, all right? It took a lot of guys to carry this thing. And so it's made out of acacia wood, right? And it's covered with gold. I mean, it's a sight to behold, all right? It is pretty cool. And they, it has these two tablets. You heard of them, Ten Commandments? Okay, so they're inside this, this acacia wood thing. And there's a pot of manna, and there's Aaron's rod. So it's a good thing. This, don't get me wrong, the ark has some really good things in it. What it represents is good, but it's not God. You know, and there's a lid on top of this thing, gold-plated. Woo! Yeah, it's surrounded by these two cherubs with these outstretched wings. Yeah, isn't this a beautiful thing? Yeah! And this is where the Lord takes presence when he meets with Moses It is indeed a symbol of God's presence, but it's not God. It's a symbol of God's presence leading people to Canaan. God leads, people follow, but it's not God. But the Israelites want this thing. They want this beautiful thing so that they can win this war. And they are convinced, they are so convinced that this is what will win it for them, is that they march into battle not with God, but with their lucky charm. Scripture says that doesn't end the way they thought it would. They don't seek out God's will. You know, they seek God to do their will. This is what we want, and this is the way we're going to do it. And they seek God to gratify their needs, so they are really just using God. And it wasn't even, they never even spoke to, to God himself. They're using the symbol of him. And the really sad thing as I read this scripture is not only did they lose the war, not only did they lose all these men, they lost sight of who God really is. It was their false narrative. They lost sight that they could have had a relationship with God rather than seeking just this shallow victory. And as I read that, my mind, I will tell you that, that my mind went to another story. And this is, and I'm not going to read this whole scripture because it was also very long, but I know you've heard this story. All right, probably more so than you who raised your hand about the Indiana Jones thing. David and Goliath, we know this one? Okay, all right. We have heard the story of David and Goliath, right? Little David standing in front of big old Goliath, right? And he stands in front of this giant, and he says, Hey! I brought my lucky slingshot and my magical stones, and you're going down. Not the way it happened, right? Okay, so that is not the words that he said at all. Man, David had a totally different take on going into his battle. And this one is found in uh, 1 Samuel 17, and it is on your sheet of paper because this shows what our mindset should really be rather than taking that ark with us. Verse 45 says, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you had defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David wasn't holding on to a good luck charm. He wasn't putting his faith and his confidence in those little stones and that slingshot. He wasn't relying on any symbol. He was going into that battle, and he went into that battle with God himself because he was in a relationship with God, and his confidence came from that relationship, not in some representation of that. And I'm going to kind of use Adam's words here. Hear me now. Hear me now. What I'm not saying is that when we pray, every time God's going to answer that the way we want. I mean, we all know that that is not the reality of life. What I'm saying is that we always need to be in this state of heart check. We need to be thinking, who is it that I'm trusting? What am I trusting in as I go through this or go into this? We need to be fully aware of where we are placing our trust. There's two ways to do that. We can put our trust in God, who we know wants only the best for us. Or we can put our trust in anything that is not God, in anything else, with the hopes of manipulating that for what we think is best for us. You know, this, well, actually, yesterday, yesterday, I headed downtown for a job interview. On my way there, Kathy called me, and we talked a bit, and at the end, she says, hey, do you want me to pray for you? And I very flippantly said, I don't need prayer, very jokingly, all right? And, of course, she catches on very quickly, and she's like, oh, yeah, that's right, because you have luck on your side. You're laughing because that sounds so ridiculous, right? Man, it does. When you say it out loud, it sounds so stupid, but I think if we really stop and think about it, sometimes, even though it may not be verbal, kind of in the back of our minds and the parts we don't want to admit, Maybe we do approach situations and events and daily life just like that. Maybe sometimes our prayer lives resemble a little bit more like those Israelites. Ah, let's take this other thing. Let's, let's not, I don't want to repent of this or I don't want to, you know, I'm just going to quickly say, okay, yeah, I deserve this. Or, or, you know, we're using God for an outcome. What are we doing? I mean... Are we like Samuel 4, kind of manipulating, we want this, we think this is best for us, but we don't want this relationship, we don't want God's rules, we want to do this our way, or are we more like David? Are we seeking God's will and living out of confidence, born out of relationship, and born out of confidence that we know God himself? Can you imagine what it would be like to only see God as the product, only see him as the lucky charm, and when he doesn't produce, how disappointed you are, how disillusioned you are about God. And so we answer the third question by looking at how does Jesus view God? 
because that's the true God. And you only need to read the New Testament to find out how Jesus describes God. Look at Luke 10, 22, and why Jesus. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus Christ is God. He was fully God. He was fully human. But he knows the Father. And anyone who comes to Jesus, Jesus can explain. Jesus can teach. Jesus can heal. Jesus is everything for us to know who God is. Let me turn your attention to the God that Jesus reveals He says, God is good, he is beautiful, he's loving and trustworthy, he's self-sacrificial and forgiving, he is powerful and caring and out for our good. In the Psalms, we read that God is steadfast in his love. That comes back to the Hebrew word hesed that we studied about last year meaning loving kindness. And I found this interesting that only in the book of Psalms, steadfast love is mentioned 147 times. You think it's important? In Matthew 19:17, Jesus said, there is only one who is good. And as we've done each week, we also want to look at how how it is that Jesus reconciles this misconception of God being this good luck charm. I'm going to read you just a short passage from Luke 13. It says, About the time some people came up and told him about the Galileans Pilate had killed while they were at worship, mixing their blood with the blood of the sacrifices on the altar. Jesus responded, Do you think those murdered Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Not at all. Unless you turn to God, you too will die. And those 18 in Jerusalem the other day, the ones crushed and killed when the Tower of Salem collapsed and fell on them, do you think they were worse citizens than all the other Jerusalemites? Not at all. Unless you turn to God, you too will die. In this passage, what Jesus was doing, it's interesting that he was actually talking about current events that that had happened then, current events of the day. It says the people came to him. They came up to him and were wanting to talk about this. I'm sure they're trying to wrap their brains around how did this happen? You know, how how can a God let this happen? So he's confronting this misconception that they are pointing out to him that God is a lucky charm. He's doling out either good or bad results depending on who deserves which. He was saying that the Galileans who were murdered, no different than those who were not. No more, no less deserving of the fate that they met. And he reiterated the same message in Matthew 5. In part of that, he says, the rain falls on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Man, good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people. But one's luck has nothing 
to do with that. And if you notice in that passage, he answered both of, you know, he asked two questions, do you think? Do you think? And after each of those questions, he laid out the truth of what he wanted them to get. Unless you turn to God, you too will die. And in saying that, he was challenging the way they were looking at God, and he was telling them that they needed to make a U-turn about their thinking, about how they were living their lives, and maybe how they see and were using God to get what they wanted. I'll tell you that I'm happy. I'm happy to know that we do not serve a God who is up there saying, oh, bad luck for you, good luck for you. Oh, little bad luck over there, little good luck over here. Oh, I've done too much bad luck today. I need to sprinkle some good. Man, I'm glad we don't serve that God. I'm thankful we serve a God who wants nothing more for us than to turn to him, to be in relationship with him. Here at the Neighborhood Church, we want to seek the true God. We want to know who the true God is. If we want a deeper life with God, we really have to study who he is. We had a wedding earlier this year. Brendan and Sarah got married. And, you know, they took time before they exchanged vows to get to know each other. I'm sure Sarah wanted to know everything about Brendan, what he liked, what TV stations he liked, if he liked Coke or Dr. Pepper, where he liked to eat, and he wanted to know everything about her, like who she loves in, in actress in, in the movies. What movies do you love, Sarah? Uh, let's go see this one. They studied each other because they really desired to know each other before they entered into marriage. If we are going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to study God. We have to know who He is. We have to to know what pleases Him. We have to read the Scriptures, not only individually, but in community. And we look at the spiritual disciplines and maybe maybe choose one to practice from here to the end of the year. There are many. I love Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. If you haven't read that book, it's a, it's a good read. But picking one of, one of the disciplines to practice, for example, meditation or prayer or fasting, solitude, study, simplicity, submissive, service. We're on this path together as community in the neighborhood church. Let us love together. Let us grow together. Let us encourage one another along the way.